0: We are beginning a new series this morning. Uh, we've called it Bound for Glory. And the series will follow, the. it'll be the last section of Acts. We've worked through Acts over the past several years, and we're now finishing up the last portion of Acts, which is Paul's journey to Rome, which is, is really not so much as a trip. Uh, it, it's the accounting of him being arrested, unlawfully arrested in Jerusalem, imprisoned, and ultimately extradited to Rome for trial. And one of the reasons we've called it Bound for Glory is throughout the entire episode from chapter 20 on through 28, there's this continual theme of Paul being bound, shackled, imprisoned. Uh, So from the perspective of mankind, uh, his ministry would appear to be an abject failure. But at the same time, throughout this account is the clear indication that the Holy Spirit and the Lord is at work to move him to Rome. And so that he's 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 bound for home, almost bound on a journey. And there's this, this double reality, or there's these these two realities. One is th- that we see with the eyes of man, which is Paul has failed, the ministry has failed, he's caught, and it's over. The other one we see is the Lord has decided that... God, God wants to take Paul to Rome so that he can preach the gospel there as well. And you'll see this, well, you may see it in your own life. You may see in your life twists and turns that in our human estimation is failure, uh, but in God's divine wisdom is a doorway. And and that's this this series. Now, we're beginning in the 20th chapter, um, and it's a very unusual passage in the book of Acts. It's quite unlike any other portion of the book of Acts. This is a farewell speech that Paul is making to uh, the pastors of the church of Ephesus. It's the only conversation we have recorded in the book of Acts of Paul actually teaching Christians, teaching followers. We see him teaching, sharing his testimony. We see him admonishing the word in, uh, in, in Athens to people who don't know him, but this is really the only time it's Paul speaking to Christians. And so this section of Acts sounds more like the letters of Paul than it does the narrative of Acts. And it's, it's, a, it's, pretty, it's very rich uh, with ideas and concepts. And I even want to say this morning, it may feel to you teachy at times, Um, But I want to put it, I want to convey it uh, before you um, for the benefit of the church. Because Paul is going to be talking today about raising up pastors, or what a pastor ought to be, what a shepherd or an elder ought to be. And especially in light of where we are in our church, where uh, the pastor of your church Jeff, Terry, and I feel that we are under-shepherded, and we need to look in the fellowship and, and find who God may be calling to shepherd the fellowship. Uh, how ap- apropos is this uh, for us to be under? So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll address the word. Lord, all scriptures God-breathed and is useful. So Lord, this is useful for every believer and every person in this room, Lord. I pray pray that if someone is here and they're they're not with you, they might be drawn closer. I pray that for those who are here who call you Lord, that they they might fall under this teaching in a way that that matures them to your glory. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, verse 17. I want to read 17 and then give you a little background. This is what it says. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus that the elders of the church would come to him. Ephesus is on the west coast of Turkey. Back in this day, it was very Greek. Think Greece. Don't think modern-day Turkey, think Greece. That's how Ephesus was. It was very Greco-Roman. It was a major city, uh, it had a wonder of the world, it. at least in recent age. There had been hit by an earthquake, but there's a great city, and Paul had been very effective in ministry in the city of Ephesus. He had been there for over two years. What he ends up saying is three years, and there had been a, a, quite a bit of a revival and a conversion, a movement in the city. Is what had happened. But he would go away. He was an itinerant preacher. So he would preach in a place for a while, but then he would go back and check on the other churches that he had helped to plant, or they had worked to strengthen, and he would come back. And, and for a while, Ephesus uh, may have felt a little bit like home to him. And what we see here is Paul, on his way, he's actually on his way to Jerusalem, very intentionally. He has with him, an offering for the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem had fallen on very hard times and had experienced famine and serious persecution. And so the churches, as God spread the church around the Mediterranean, those churches uh, would gather funds and offerings and send them back to the city to help the Christians in Jerusalem survive. That's what was happening. And Paul, in this occasion, is conveying part of, part of that offering back to Jerusalem, and so he feels drawn to get there, and he says earlier in the book of Acts, he longs to get there by Pentecost, so he has, and remember, you're traveling in the old days, the weather was a big issue, if you can't get a ship then, and you miss the weather, you won't get there for months, so he has the weather in mind, and so he's very uh, very intentional about getting to to Jerusalem, and in his mind, the worst possible thing he could do is stop in Ephesus, you can't go home, it's like your mom will say, oh, you've got to stay for dinner. You know, The city's going to say that. The church will say, oh, you can't just go. Look, we have to stay for dinner. Oh, let's just do, remember the old times? So what he does is he goes a little farther south to a town called Miletus and then sends message up to say, hey, tell the pastors of the church to come down to meet me. And he's giving them farewell words. This is a church he's loved that he's saying to these pastors, I, you're never going to see my face again. I'm leaving forever. He knows what's going to happen to him. Now, just imagine that. Imagine something that you, you had been a big part of and was so close to your heart and that you had given so much love to. And, and he calls these pastors in. And this is, this is his parting conversation with him that we get to read today. As, as far as interest uh, at a learning level, I want you to notice that he sends to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Elders plural of the church. Uh, this church's background is, is uh, like many Baptist churches, grows with a, a comfort of a solitary elder or pastor. That's not what we see the biblical image is. The biblical image is a plurality of elders. There's a group of elders who are shepherding the church. And we have, in some ways, uh, Jimmy rigged that here by keeping uh, Jeff and Terry and I closely connected. Um, But this is one of the things that that I I feel that uh, our church could grow towards is a theological conviction to say it's important to have eldership caring for the flock. And I think you'll see some of that uh, this morning. Okay, let me read. I'm going to read 18 through 21. This is Paul pouring his heart. He wants to pour his heart out to these men. I mean, And he's going to begin by giving them a recollection of his life in Ephesus. Verse 18, And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts with, remember, since the day I got here, I've been doing this. Paul's reminding them that his ministry in Ephesus has been perfectly consistent. Since the day I got here, I have been doing this. And then he goes on to describe uh, this is the path of his conversation. He describes his spirit of service, which ends up resulting in his teaching. He's, he's, he talks about service and teaching. In fact, the little magic word in this reading is the word and. He serves and he teaches with humility and tears and trials in home and in public space, to the Jews and to the Greeks, repentance and faith. There's this, he's, he's, it's these bookends to give you a sense of the breadth and scope of his ministry. And when I, when I was studying for this, you know, I wrote down, oh, this is right, yeah, service and teaching. Service and teaching, that's what pastors do. They serve and they teach. And I, I wrote, I took notes, and I even typed these notes, and they made it all the way to Sunday morning. And there's a problem, though, is what I was going to say to you is, Paul's talking about how he served them, how he served the church, because that's what pastors do. They serve the church. That's not what it says. It was very frustrating. I had to line it out in my notes. I preferred my notes for a time. Now, line it out. He does not serve the church. He serves the Lord. You see this verse 19? Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. And, and uh, the fact that I had it wrong is an issue of the spirit, and it is an issue of our spirit. We are naturally, we naturally want to serve people, and when we serve people, you know what happens? We run out of energy. That, what, what, what does it mean? With all humility and with tears and with trials. That means as I was serving the Lord, is what Paul's saying, when I'm serving the Lord in this thankless ministry, is what he's saying, that costs me. Humility and tears and trials. In other words, he didn't wake up in the morning and walk into church to a standing ovation, and it wasn't like people were coming to him. they were persecuting him. The Jewish synagogue was trying to shut him down. They're going to be the reason by the way he gets arrested in Jerusalem. If we are serving others, we will run out of energy. We will not persevere through humility and tears and trials. Because people will not approve. Paul is serving the Lord. It's the Lord who gives us approval in and out of season. It is the Lord who is never lacking of any good thing. It is the Lord that no matter how disappointing you may be, no matter how much of a failure you may be, no matter what someone else's estimation of you is, it's the Lord who says, I have adopted you as my child. You are mine, and I called you, and I have things to say about you. That's how believers serve with humility and tears and trials. And we get this wrong all the time. I mean, we're about to like head face, face straight into VBS. right? And we could, you could pick yourself up by your bootstraps and serve others, and you will be exhausted and bitter, and you're gonna come out of VBS saying, I'm doing that again. How many of us have done that more years in a row, and you need nine months to forget you said that, you know, versus versus telling yourself, this may be thankless, this may cost tears, and it may be a trial, but I'm serving the Lord, it's different, it's a world of difference, it's such an important crossroads when the follower of Jesus turns his mind to service, I know Jesus loves me, now what must I do That is still a service to God. And then he begins to to kind of expound upon the, the parameters or the scope of all this. So he says, Look, since the day I showed up, I've been serving the Lord. And you know I've been serving the Lord because it's cost me. It's cost me so much in my life. And then he begins to say, And you remember how I not once have I ever shrunk back from declaring anything that's profitable to you. It's the classic truth. He who loves the Lord most loves others best. That's just true, it's true, it's true. You will love your children better if you love the Lord most. You will love your spouse better if you love the Lord most. The Lord will always turn you around and push you back in. And the Lord will affirm you. And the Lord will give you his spirit. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, it cost me, but I never once did I shrink back from admonishing you for anything that might be profitable. And then he begins, to. here's the scope. He says, I did it, and I taught in the houses and in the public spaces. I taught the Jew, and I taught the Greek. I taught of repentance before God and of faith in Jesus Christ. What's, what he's saying, these are the parameters. He's saying, I taught the truth everywhere to everyone and I gave the whole countenance of Scripture. Right, good bookends for the gospel is repentance of sin and faith in Christ Jesus. Right? The gospel starts with there is a God He's holy. We are not holy and have no hope, but it is but for the blood of Jesus Christ who shed his blood for us. That's the gospel. And he's kind of expressed there, but for repentance of sin and faith in Christ Jesus. Later on, he's going to say, I did it day and night. So he says, I did this thing. I didn't shrink back one iota. I preached it everywhere to everyone all the time. I gave the entire message. Since the day I got here, I haven't stopped doing that. That's good. We're no Paul. Paul's no Jesus. Jesus, how much better was Jesus? How much more did Jesus serve the Lord through humility, trials, and tears? I mean, how much more did Jesus proclaim the full countenance of God to everyone at all times, and all places? There's church language that we use uh, It makes it sound like you took a seminary class. You talk about the exclusivity of the gospel. That's the lingo in the industry. The exclusivity of the gospel. What we mean by that when we say it is that, uh, it says in John, Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. That's what we mean, and it's true. Oftentimes what the world hears is our good news is not for them. That's sometimes how we unintentionally say something we didn't mean to say and miss getting the message across. There's, there's The reality is, is actually there's a massive inclusivity of the gospel in the sense of the gospel is for everyone. It's for everybody, everywhere, all the time. That's what Paul's saying. There's a tremendous exclusivity of God. There is one God worthy of worship who is only known by Jesus Christ. Completely Exclusive. And that one true God has given us a very inclusive gospel. He's given us a gospel for everyone to respond. That's what Paul's saying. He says, I have reached, I have in service to the Lord reached my arms around as many people in as many ways as I possibly can imagine at great cost to my life so that some might know the countenance of the Lord because it's profitable to them and it gives them life. That's what he's saying Now, how would you like to be one of those pastors? (sighs) Well, we are, are we not? I mean, some level, I mean, it's different for me than it is for you, but it's not really. The truth trickles down like water into the earth. It starts at Jesus and passes through Paul on the way to the shepherds, and it lands on the least of these eventually. We all serve the Lord, we all share the word. So he lays it out before them, and then he tells them he's leaving. So I'm leaving. Look at verse 22. I'll read 22 to 27. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Stop there. We have this peek into this theme of being bound for glory right here. He says, I am constrained by the Spirit, or bound in the Spirit, he says. I'm bound in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I have to go. But he says, at the same time, I have full mindfulness of what's going to happen to me there the Spirit is drawing me to my own physical demise, and I know it. In other words, my journey to Jerusalem is purely a step of faith, not for any kind of self-gain, not for any kind of personal dream. He's saying, my only dream now is the Lord, and I'm therefore going to Jerusalem, even though I know that afflictions and trials await me. He says, what does it matter to me my life is not precious to me. All that matters to me is God's consistent approval. That I'm on the path, that when the Lord looks down, when I feel the Lord looking down, I'm where I'm supposed to be, and I feel his pleasure. It's not that. That is the call of the Christian. You know, and I can't, I can't give it to you because I don't got it the way I could package it. I don't know how to package it. I don't even, I'm not in control of it. It happens, it progressively happens in those of us who call Jesus Lord, that as the life goes on, we love our lives less and we love life in him more. And that is it. It's, a, it's the mysterious ingredient towards faithfulness to increasingly and progressively be infatuated with God. To wake up and wonder what he wants you to do today when you're sinful, to lament it because you, you feel like you've broken his heart and to want, and, but yet to turn to him and no other for forgiveness. We want that more and more and more. And as we want that more and more and more, these dreams, it's not that we have to kill these dreams. These dreams change. These dreams become his dreams or these dreams, they fade away in some senseless, meaningless way that you, you don't even know why you wanted them in the first place. It's not this radical cutting off of something you love. It's falling in love with something else. That's what he's saying here. He's saying I'm going someplace and I know afflictions await me but God is there so why wouldn't I go? And he rounds it out with this statement. I am innocent of the blood of all. Now Paul is saying this to pastors. It is true at various levels with all of us. What Paul is saying is, if God gives the mandate, to the degree that God gives you the mandate of the word, you are responsible to share that. God has given Paul a powerful mandate. God met him on the road to Damascus. He blinded him, gave him back his sight, put a spirit in him, brought him a distant place away, appeared to him in bizarre and majestic ways that, that even he can't fully explain. Has brought him back, has placed him way up front and made him a mouthpiece of the gospel to many people and many nations. So his responsibility is great. He has a great responsibility. He's saying, be- the responsibility I have, that's why I have invested my life into this. That's why I serve the Lord continually since the day I arrived here, in home and in public spaces, at night and at day, to the Jew and to the Greek, the entire countenance of the gospel. That, that is why I've done that. I'm therefore innocent of any blood. In other words, I've done my part. I've been faithful in the way I've proclaimed. And, and I, I know we are no Paul. But is this not true about us? I mean, I'm not saying that you need to become Paul. I'm saying in your own way, when you approach the Lord, in the, to the measure that he's given you the gospel and maybe gifted you to speak and placed you among people who need it, have you done it? What about your neighbor? I mean, is your, is, ah, what would that feel like? Go to heaven. To the degree that you have the life-giving words of Jesus. Can you say, I'm innocent of the blood of all? I mean, the principle, the principle's True. for he did not shrink back from the whole council. All right, that is his preamble. (laughs) How would you like to be one of those? That's a pastor's conference. He pretty much said, since the day I showed up, I did everything right with all of who I am. It's going to cost me my life, but I don't care because I love God and I'm innocent. And then he gives them the teaching as though that is not a teaching Right, example teaches. But here's the teaching. It's verse 28. I just want to read one verse. I'm going to read it to you twice. One of the reasons I'm reading to it twice is because if, if God is at work in some of you, if he's working the work that's calling you towards being a shepherd or an elder or a pastor, I want to, I want to read this to you. I want to put this in you. I want to insert this into your life as though it, maybe it would be like a pillar of recollection. Of this is, to me, it's not a list of qualifications. We know the Bible has qualifications. Qualifications is not job description. This is the job description of a pastor or a shepherd. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. i read it one more time. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I want to show you a few things. One is he says, pay careful attention to yourselves. Now, in First Timothy, he writes Timothy on a personal level and he says something to this effect. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Care for your life and doctrine. Okay, so certainly is true. We should all we should all police and carefully watch our own life, be attentive to our own life. We should remove that so that we right the speck in our eye, we should do those things or the plank in our eye. We should be but here he's speaking to the pastor saying, carry careful attention to yourselves. And that to me says to Jeff, pay careful attention of John and Terry. And to Terry, pay careful attention of John and Jeff. And to me, watch out in the life of Terry and Jeff. Not just me. It's not Terry. You worry about Terry and John. You worry about John. It's you yourselves, police, guard, shepherd, and care for one another. Watch one another. Ask about. Be particularly careful about one another and the flock. I, mean, I, I say this because it is so much better to have a friend. In ministry, than to be alone. I don't know how guys alone do it. I don't know. To have someone there who reminds you that you're serving the Lord. I think that's important. There's another important word. All the important words today are small. In which pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, in which, I want to say it should be over which. Over which. It's not. A shepherd is a sheep. A shepherd is not a different creature. A shepherd is not something, you don't go somewhere and become a shepherd and come back. A shepherd is a humble sheep. They ought to be a humble sheep. They ought to appear as a humble sheep. This is this is Paul reminding them. You were in, you hear the embedded nature. Careful attention to yourselves and the flock in which the Holy Spirit's called you out. You're not over, even though you're an overseer. You're a sheep in the flock who's been called out to oversee. That is a, another important element of this. And then there's this, it's God's church. It's the church of the Lord's, right? To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So there's this notion of careful attention uh, for the flock in which you've been called out to oversee God's church. You realize there's, there's it's a very humbling statement for a pastor. Pa- Paul is not, he's not giving them some big fancy introduction. He's saying, You're one of them, God's called you out, but it's still his church. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 5. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Here's the purpose. I'm going to read 29... Uh, to 31. So why? Right. If that's what we're supposed to do, why are we supposed to do it? Here's what Paul says. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul says, you have to do this because things will not remain as they are. In other words, the church is constantly prone to decay because of our nature. It's, just, it's like truth is to us like a bad post-it You know the posts that you put up and they just fall off? That's how truth is because of our nature. We know what we ought to do, but we can't seem to do it. We have this sense of truth that just doesn't stick to us. It's because we're not washed clean. We're not completely washed clean. It's the nature. And so so Paul's reminding them, look, I didn't, Paul the apostle didn't set this church up and get it running and then kind of gives it the thumbs up. He's not saying my work is done here and I'm leaving. He's saying the work is never done. The work will never be done in the church. The church is always prone to roll off the hill. In two places, from the outside, fierce wolves will come in among you from the outside to devour you. Is there any sense of love there? There's a clear sense that evil has an objective. I mean, how often, how often in our lives have we seen the outside world seem to really care about what we think, even though they have no love for us. They want to alter the way we think, alter the words we say, alter all of our dispositions before the Lord and truth and all of that. Even though they have no love for us, it's not like we can actually negotiate any sense of real affection with the world. They will not love us until we radically denounce the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. So why negotiate? There's going to be a perpetual discontent with the words that come out of a faithful church until that church is dead. In the state of Delaware, they recently legislated you can't spank your children. God says you can. Just wanted you to know that. We don't bend. We don't bend. God said, do not discipline in anger. He has a lot to say. The world does not care about us. I don't mean your neighbors who don't know Jesus. I mean the force. I hope you appreciate that. Likewise, he says, inside the church, the same thing's happening. Men are rising up and they're twisting things, right? Vainglory and pride and self-seeking and desire for self-love and lack of forgiveness and anger and bitterness and all of those things that are so common to all of us, those are the roots of the cancer that killed churches from within inside. And we've all seen it. We've all seen it. Everybody has their war stories of why they stopped going to a church or what happened to that church because inside it was allowed to grow and fester. And what... Paul is saying is is your job is to pay careful attention to your lives and to the flock so that that doesn't happen. Your job is to fight, to keep the lives of the world out, and to use the rod and the staff of the shepherd to discipline the church within so that it is God-glorifying and so that it is purifying. That's what you're supposed to do, and that's why you need to do it. We all share some responsibility here, right? Christ is perfect. Paul was great. Pastors should be good at it. it should, we should all be doing it. All right, and here's his final commendation. And now I commend to you, excuse me, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I covet no one's silver or gold or apparel, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. and all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken to that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Paul ends, and it's a conversation. It's, it's not a treatise, but he ends with this idea. So he, he says, here's my example in life. That's how he starts. Here's my example in life. Here's therefore what you're supposed to do. Here's why you're supposed to do it. And now he's kind of like, and here should be your spirit in doing it. You should be doing this with a heart of, uh, uh, that's not trying to gain anything for yourself. We're not, this is, pastoring is not a proposition of promotion, of self-promotion, or of self-growth, or of, of building your self-identity around He says, rather, quite the opposite. He says, did you see my life? My life shepherding was a life of giving, even giving of what I had, so there would be, there would be no barrier between me and someone else in the gospel. If we're trying to serve others... And this is true in every relationship, marriage, friendship, parenting. If your goal is to serve them, you will eventually get exhausted and you will eventually become a taker. You'll start to take. You will exhaust. I've loved and loved and loved and I got nothing in return. And you know what you're going to start to do? You're going to start to get what you have due. It's going to happen. If you serve the Lord, oh, but his wealth that he will bestow upon us is so unmerited that it, it, you can say, I don't need that. This is how Peter ends it. The same reading I did to you last time, right? Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. You hear the same spirit? Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flocks. You hear the same spirit. He says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's what Paul wants. I am constrained to go there because I want to run the race and receive the crown of glory that God offers. Christ did this perfectly. Paul did this wonderfully. Your pastors should do this well, but you should do it. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, I lift up everybody here. Lord, whether they know you, whether they're suspicious of you, whether they just came to see someone baptized or whether they, they've been in Christ for decades, give us a sense, Lord, that you're holy and you're marvelous and you're good and you're strong, Lord, and that our, our lives should be directed towards you. And I pray, Lord, that in each one of these minds and spirits, we would have a notion of who are we responsible to care for. So that when we stand before you, we will be innocent of the blood of all. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.